Welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast, episode 41. Yes. Welcome to Stock Stories. I am Alex, your host, your stock storyteller today. And thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time and attention. um, And I want to honor that by providing really good content for you today. So what have we talked about recently on Stock Stories? Well, last week we talked about the mental model of Hanlon's razor, which was very interesting. And before that, we talked about Coca-Cola the week prior, a legendary company, uh, not just in the beverage category, but in general. And today we're going to talk about how can we talk about Coke without talking about Pepsi, right? So let's get into Pepsi. All right, so if you know what Coke is, then you probably know what Pepsi is. PepsiCo is pretty much the arch rival of the Coca-Cola company and always has been since both of the company's humble beginnings back in the late 1800s. And PepsiCo is in some ways very much like Coca-Cola, but in some ways it's very different. And we're going to get into that once we talk about the company as it stands today in 2018. But before that, as we like to do, let's talk about the origins of the company. So PepsiCo began in um, 1890s, and it was started by a pharmacist, just like Coca-Cola was, by a man named Caleb Bradham in North Carolina. And he developed a unique formula for a soda syrup and he patented it and created a company but this was basically a failure even though the drink itself was enjoyed by a lot of people locally um, the business just went under in the 19 in 1930s and so there was another man named Charles Guth who was in the syrup manufacturing business in Baltimore, and he purchased the rights to Pepsi. And this man, Charles Guth, he was also the president of another company called Loft. Now, this company, Loft, was basically a series of candy stores and restaurants. So um, he saw this opportunity. He used Loft's engineers and scientists to formulate um, a better version of the formula he produced from Bradham. So he basically took the Pepsi formula and and improved upon it with Loft's resources. And the reason that he bought it was in the supply of 
syrup for his soda fountains at the at the restaurants and candy stores of the loft business, Coca-Cola would not give them a discount for buying in bulk. And so uh, Charles Guth wanted some sort of alternative um, to keep the cost down for this other company. And so Pepsi happened to go bankrupt right at the time that they were trying to make this decision. So he just went ahead and bought the company and bought the assets of the company outright privately for himself because he saw how it could be used to his benefit. So he improved upon the formula and this was great. Everything was good. Uh, Pepsi started being sold in lofts, various soda, uh, various candy stores and, and restaurants, and it started to gain popularity. And over time, Guth gradually shifted more and more of Loft's resources to developing Pepsi-Cola. And this was great for the company's profitability, but the problem was that it wasn't Loft, the company that owned Pepsi. It was Charles Guth who owned Pepsi. And as someone who was also a president, the president of this company, you can see how there's a conflict of interest, right? You have one man's private dealings that are very connected with his duty as the president of this company that his private dealings are connected to. So this led to a bunch of the shareholders of Lofts becoming upset and basically suing him. And so this became this landmark legal case in 1939 of Guth versus Loft. And it basically established that a corporate officer has a fiduciary duty to its stockholders and to not have conflict between their private interests and their job. Um, So this was very important for helping to establish the rights of shareholders. Think about it if it were you and I. If you and I own some company together and then um, I went ahead and started investing in something and basically using our company's resources to benefit my private dealings, well, eh, that that, that would be fishy, right? Because you're not getting the benefit necessarily. I'm getting the benefit. Um, so this was important. So the result of that case was that Loft, the company, ended up winning. And so the board of directors of Loft said, okay, Pepsi, this is becoming a pretty popular thing. We need to basically focus on this like Charles Guth did, except now we're going to read the benefits over him. And so they effectively rebranded as the Pepsi-Cola company and they ended up spinning off the restaurants and candy shops that they had started with. So they effectively transformed into this adjacent market once the proof of concept was already there. So Pepsi grew over the 40s and the 50s and started to become really popular. Um, And in the meanwhile, there was another company named Frito Company, This is in the 1930s. And so this was founded. And then there was another company called H.W. Lay Company. And they both sold different types of chips. So they were in the chip business. Frito had Fritos, which still exists today, the famous corn chip. 
and Lay had the Lay's chips, which are the classic American potato chip. And so these companies, in the meanwhile, are growing their brands and their companies around the same time that Pepsi was growing their beverage brands. Now, at this point in the story, um, Frito and Lay decided to start working together to expand their chip network. So um, they started working together in the 40s, and then by 1961, they formed the Frito-Lay Company. Now, the Frito-Lay Company, they had big sellers like Fritos, Lay's, Cheetos, and Ruffles. So these brands still exist to this day. And they originated all the way back in the 1960s and even earlier. So talk about brand power, right? Like, uh, you know, these are brands that have been around that people are still eating many, many decades later. So one thing about Frito-Lay that was interesting was that their distribution system was more innovative than the other chip companies. So they had these quote-unquote route men that would basically bypass the warehouses that would store the chips, and they would go directly to the stores where they were selling them. And they would make sure the shelves were stocked with the Frito-Lay product. They would make sure they looked nice and attractive to consumers. And they basically kind of cut out the middleman there and just went right for the chip aisle in order to make sure that people would buy their chips. And uh, so this is actually, uh, there's a small connection here to my own life. I found out some time ago that one of my grandfathers actually worked for uh, the Granny Goose company, which was a chip company, a snack company out in California. And this was one of the many acquisitions that Frito-Lay ended up making at a certain point in time. And so my grandpa used to drive the trucks, apparently, to deliver chips So, um, small family connection, but another thing that Frito-Lay did that was innovative was, have you ever seen in the grocery store or just in general, how you have the aisles, right? And most of the inventory is stacked in the aisles. Well, at the end of the aisles, there's usually these end caps, these little display shelves that you see right when you walk by the aisle. You don't even have to walk into the aisle but you see these end caps and there's usually some sort of featured product there at the end cap. And then what Frito-Lay found was if they created these end caps, they could improve their sales by double digits. And this is all the result of Frito-Lay marketing research. And so that innovation originates to the Frito-Lay company and their obsession with trying to figure out how people bought snacks, how people bought things in stores, and then trying to optimize everything about the environment that people would purchase their products to be basically selling more. Um, So that's just another thing that they did. Now, switching the storyline back again to Pepsi. So meanwhile, PepsiCo had been expanding internationally. They invented Mountain Dew. They were creating other brands of sodas. And by 1965, they were in 108 countries. So keep in mind that Coca-Cola was also expanding very rapidly during this time. And so Pepsi was going right alongside them. They were saying, hey, we're not going to seed market share internationally just because we're a U.S.-based company too. We're going to expand rapidly as well. 
And so they did that successfully. Now, 1965 was a big year because Pepsi ended up merging with Frito-Lay. And this was pretty historic. So you had this fast-growing beverage company merging with a fast-growing chip company and seemingly unrelated, right? I mean, yeah, they're both edible and yeah, you eat chips and you can drink soda, but they're still two different types of products, right? Well, why did this merger happen? When I was doing my research for this episode, it seemed like the executives wanted a few different things. And one is that Frito-Lay did not yet have an international presence, and Pepsi did. So Pepsi could use its existing distribution channels and marketing channels to sell chips overseas. So that was one reason. And another reason was phrased by the CEO, Donald Kendall, and he said he wanted to market both products jointly. Quote, potato chips make you thirsty, Pepsi satisfies thirst, end quote. And so it was kind of this genius idea that, hey, these products basically go together. They're both kind of snack type foods. You combine the saltiness of a chip with the refreshing sugar of a soda, and you have have this perfect addictive combination that people want to eat and drink all the time. So this was great in theory. Um... But the government didn't really like this. So um, I found an excerpt from a book called Crunch, A History of the American Potato Chip. And it basically said that the Federal Trade Commission, they started making moves in 1968 to stop the newly formed PepsiCo from growing too big. So they didn't like this idea of joint marketing because they felt like it was just creating too, uh, too strong of a marketing platform for both brands. So they they prohibited, quote-unquote, tie-in advertising with Pepsi Soda and the Salty Snacks. So they disallowed that. Um, they barred PepsiCo from acquiring any snack or soft drink maker for a period of 10 years, which is a pretty big, uh, pretty big mandate there, um, which tells you how serious the... FTC was looking at this merger. A lot of times when big players that are already big players merge, it starts to scare people in the markets saying like, oh, you know, is it going to be too big to fail, basically? And and those are some valid concerns. Uh, so this was FTC's way of trying to keep things in check. So not only did they bar PepsiCo from acquiring another company within the beverage or snack industry for 10 years, but they also forced Frito-Lay to sell 10 out of 28 of their plants to another company uh, called Nefco. And they forced Frito-Lay to buy a gradually decreasing percentage of their products for several years. And effectively, the idea behind this was to help foster competition, right? So if the FTC said to me, hey, I have to buy products from you for a certain number of years. Say the first year I buy 90%, the next year I have to buy 70, the next year I have to buy 50, etc. until I don't have to buy from you anymore. Um, that's supposed to help you get a leg up, right? Because you, you're getting guaranteed money from the biggest player in the business. Well, as often happens, there are second and third order effects, which is a mental model I'm sure will cover uh, in the coming episodes. And basically, government regulations don't always work out as intended. In fact, they often have counterintuitive effects. 
So the result of this mandate from the FTC was that this company, Nefco, they, they, at first it was great because they were basically getting free money from the newly formed PepsiCo and just making money, just selling their products. But over time, they became too reliant on them as their sole customer. And as time went on and PepsiCo started buying less and less products from them, they were basically scrambling to try to find other customers, but it ended up being too little too late. And because they didn't have that sense of urgency from the get-go to acquire a new business, they ended up failing. And so that's just an example of how government regulation sometimes helps businesses and hurts others in unintended ways. All right, so now we have the PepsiCo company. Everything's going great. They have merged and they're dealing with these new regulations, but they're still innovating. So in 1966, this was another big year, they introduced Doritos. And initially, it was just kind of like a plain tortilla chip. They just wanted as an alternate to tortilla chips. But people said it was too bland, rightly so, right? So they basically added nacho cheese flavors and other flavors. And people absolutely loved it. They went crazy over this chip. It became the number one chip in the United States. And so that was a big hit. They introduced the two-liter bottle in 1970. They started beating Coke in popularity in the 70s as well. And so they were starting to really gain um, that number one market share. In 1977, they acquired Pizza Hut. In 78, they acquired Taco Bell. And by 1985, they had expanded to over 150 countries. And they continued their fast food acquisition spree by acquiring KFC in 1986. So now you've got the Pepsi brands, you've got uh, Doritos and all the chip brands. And not only that, but you have all these uh, fast food restaurants that you can use to, to sell your products in. So in your KFC, you can sell Pepsi products. In your Taco Bell, you can sell Pepsi products and et cetera. And so that, um, those synergies helped grow the business. They had some epic advertising, very similar to Coca-Cola, they ended up getting Michael Jackson to sign a, sign an advertisement endorsement deal with them. And that really helped propel the brand too. you know, to new generations. Uh, in the 90s, they partnered with Unilever for tea and they partnered with Starbucks for coffee. So they not only created their own brands, but they partnered with other strong brands um, in the space in order to sell more products for both. And so That's a a similar strategy to the one that Coke has used over the years. So in 1997, they ended up spinning off all the fast food businesses. So they spun off KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut as a company called Tricon Global Restaurants, which, if you ask me, is the most corporate-y sounding name ever, which it's good that they renamed it again because it was renamed later to Yum Brands, which still exists today. And over the years, they've acquired Tropicana, Sobe, Quaker Oats, Stacy's Pita Chips. It, it just goes on and on. I'm not even going to list all of them. Um, and again, the, the similarities, similarities to Coca-Cola are astounding as well when you see their strategies. So you know how in Coca-Cola, in that episode, we talked about how they partner with the Olympics for many, many years to get on the world stage. Well, Pepsi... If Coca-Cola owns the advertising for the Olympics, well, Pepsi owns the advertising for the Super Bowl. 
they've been partnering with the Super Bowl for over 20 years straight. And um, so, yeah, there's just a lot of similarities between the two business models and strategies. In 2018, uh, Pepsi acquired Pepsi Bottling Group and Pepsi Americas, two of its largest bottlers. And so, um, whereas Coke is divesting its bottlers, Pepsi has acquired them. So, some slight differences there. So, now let's get to an overview of the company today. So, PepsiCo obviously has evolved a lot. It's merged different types of businesses. It's sold different types of products over the years. Well, now it is about 50-50 snacks and beverages. So it also sells breakfast foods through Quaker Oats, which has become a bigger portion of its revenue and profit. So about 50-50 of the revenue comes from food and beverage, respectively, and about 58% of the revenue comes from money uh, in the United States, and 42% comes from international markets. Uh, It is worth noting, though, that 71% of the profit comes through North American sales. So it's still definitely a U.S. company, but it's not as geographically diversified as Coca-Cola is that's generating money in 200 countries, you know, and generating sales in virtually every country in the world that has developed economic markets. Uh, So PepsiCo is diversified, definitely compared to your average company. It's definitely an international conglomerate. It's not quite as diversified geographically as Coke is, but it is more more diversified as far as product offerings. It's got all the foods, whereas Coca-Cola, they don't sell any food at all. They focus exclusively on non-alcoholic liquids. So the primary brands of PepsiCo are Pepsi, Frito-Lay, Gatorade, Quaker, and Tropicana. Those are pretty much the main brands that they rely on. And they've been successful at building those brands and maintaining dominance in those brands over the years. So as far as the financials, in 2017, they sold $63 billion of of goods. In 2010, that was only $57 billion. That's about a 1.4% annual growth rate. So it's kind of crawling along there as far as sales growth. It's net income. It looks like it was $4.8 billion this past year and $6.3 billion in 2010, which would be um, a loss, right? It would be um, declining profit. But really, there was a one-time tax hit. Again, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act distorts the numbers. So the operating profit is what I looked at in this case. The operating profit in 2017 was $10.5 billion. And in 2010, it was $8.3 billion. So we have about 3-ish, 3.5% annual growth in the profits there, um, which I think is more accurate. And uh, so, yeah, basically flat results as far as earnings per share, but the operating profit underlying the business has been indeed increasing. If we turn our attention to the balance sheet, um, the cash, it's got $10 billion in cash compared to $4 billion Um, in 2011 and the total assets of the company though have basically stayed the same they've gone from 72 billion in 2011 to 79 billion in 2017 
Now, as far as the debt goes, it had $20 billion in debt in 2011 and now has $33 billion in debt in 2017. So that ratio between net income to uh, or long-term debt to net income has increased a lot actually over the years. So that long-term debt to net income ratio has, has gone up. Um, so the relative debt has increased not by an alarming amount, but it's, it's just kind of like a slow moving business as far as numbers go. And then the cash flow statement, it made $8.4 billion in cash from operations in 2010. And in 2017, it made 10 billion. So that's a two and a half percent annual increase in operating cash. So again, uh, nothing crazy here, but kind of just slow and steady growth. The investment cash, it's gone up and down over the years. They've made some acquisitions, um, but nothing too crazy on the order of four to seven billion dollars. So sizable, um, but uh, no major, major acquisitions in the past couple of years. The financing cash, uh, they actually got $1.3 billion in 2010, which is due to the fact that they borrowed more money um, than the dividends paid or shares purchased. So the financing cash is positive when you basically raise capital. And in 2017, it was $4.1 billion in outflows of financing cash. And that is from slow share repurchases, but lots of dividends paid to shareholders and more borrowings. They've been borrowing about $3 billion more every year than they have paid off for the past few years. So steady increases in borrowing. I think a lot of this has had to do with the fact that interest rates on a relative basis are still low. Um, they've been rising in the past couple of years. However, they uh, historically are, are still pretty low. So I think there's something going on there. Now, as far as the dividends, this is a pretty good story. In 2010, the dividend per share was $1.89. But in 2017, it was $3.22. So that's about an 8% annual growth in the dividends. Now, the share count has gone down by about 1.7% annually. So there's some modest share buybacks, pretty much average for an S&P 500 company from what uh, we've seen so far, um, but pretty decent dividend growth, which reflects some good underlying cash generation in the business even though it hasn't been growing very fast at all it's a pretty slow grower frankly uh, it's a reliable grower and it pays out lots of money so that's that's great right that's what you want in a business pepsico is a world-class business its current share price is around 122 dollars a share and the expected earnings this year are five dollars and 65 cents a share for a price to earnings ratio of about 21, 21 and a half. So um, a little on the high end, but the earnings quality is very high. So it's not incredibly expensive here. I don't think it's definitely not cheap though either. So if we were to look at future possible returns from this stock, well, it's paying out a dividend of about 2.6% right now. It's buying back between one and 2% of shares a year. Again, fairly typical and the organic earnings growth component of this, um, as always, this is the trickiest one, right? Because we have to make some sort of hypothesis about the future. Uh, <laughs> but based on the data that I've seen, 
uh, we'll probably get, I don't know, between 3 and 7% annual earnings growth over the next several years. Even though the revenue growth has been very slow and the underlying earnings growth has been very slow, I think that the underlying profit engine of Pepsi is very strong. They have very strong brands that continue to generate more money every year, and they have been diversifying their portfolio mix to shift towards some healthier foods, some semi-healthier foods, so that consumers will still actually want to buy their products. Because if they relied completely on selling Pepsi and Doritos, um, it would be a long, slow decline, I think, for PepsiCo. But they're not doing that. They're, they're buying brands and they're trying to innovate. So, um, so yeah, I think the total returns from the stock, you know, it depends on how much the growth is, I think. It's, we'll probably return maybe 5% on the low end and upwards of 10 or 11% from this price point if I were to take a guess. Uh, just because the growth is so slow, I expect probably toward the lower end of that range. Oh, it's because of the, the lower growth and the already fully valued valuation that I say that. If, if Pepsi was trading at a really cheap valuation, I think that the chances are it would return above average returns. Um, but it's not. It's just kind of like it's sitting there in plain sight as an excellent business at a fully valued price that's growing slowly. So I think the returns are probably going to be in the mid to high single digits going forward, which is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, it's perfectly respectable and satisfactory for many, um, especially if you just want to preserve your wealth and grow it at a decent pace. Um, but you're not going to get shoot the lights out growth with Pepsi. But I respect what Pepsi's doing with their brands. They have a balanced strategy of of, of snacks and beverages that has seemed to work pretty well. I mean, this has been going on for decades. So, uh, yeah, that's what I got for you today, y'all. Uh, thanks for listening. If you want to connect with me, Instagram is great. Stock Stories 1, that's Stock Stories, the number one. Follow me there and we can have a conversation or chat about some stocks. Or you can email me alex at stockstoriespodcast.com. Again, I am Alex, your stock storyteller. And until next time, have a good day. Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.